I know what I'd planned. And uh, I do love the songs you chose. I pray we know in both our experience mentally, theologically, but more importantly, I hope we know experientially in our heart those songs. Why should I gain? He has not treated us as our sins deserve is one of my favorite passages to preach on. And it wasn't the one I had picked for today. But as I said, my mind's kind of spinning as to what all I should try to share with you this morning. Uh, Before I go too much further, let me, because I don't want to forget this, let me lay a name before you. His name is Robert Morgret. And Robert Morgret is probably someone you will never meet this side of eternity, but he's a young man that I met in a congregation, just a tiny, tiny congregation of about 12 to 20 people. Uh, Robert is deaf, and Robert has one of the most incredible passions to be a missionary for Jesus Christ that I have ever seen. It's not enough that he's deaf. And it's not enough that he was born and raised in Pennsylvania and ended up down in Texas with us for a brief time. And then, quite frankly, because we just didn't have the ability to teach him. We don't have people who could translate. We aren't prepared for that kind of thing. But praise God, that didn't stop Robert. He just moved to Mexico. (laughs) And if you know anything about sign language, it's all compounded because they don't use the same kind of sign language in Mexico that we use in the States. And so obviously I'm uh, interested to see that you have a deaf ministry here and you have someone signing. And I thought you really need to know about Robert. He is a part of To Every Tribe, but we just feel our inability to help him. And maybe that's the best thing uh, that could happen because I believe God's going to use him in amazing ways Uh, He moved to Mexico. He came back home here, just back to Pennsylvania briefly, and now he's back in South Texas, and he's going to learn Mexican Sign Language. And he's going to learn Mexican Sign Language. I have no doubt in my mind, and he's going to be used in special ways. So please pray for Robert. Uh, He has all the physical needs. Uh, He's got financial needs. Uh, and he certainly got this need to be uh, able to communicate with the people that he so dearly uh, desires to preach the gospel to. Uh, also, let me just say, it's, it's great being here. I love uh, the opportunities of coming back to congregations like this where you know some people and you're a part uh, in one sense. I just, I enjoy uh, returning places. I love variety. I love newness. I love going to places I've never been. But I love kind of coming back. And that's the way I feel this morning, even though it's been longer than I guess I'd even imagine. It's great seeing what God's done just with your facilities, what He's done with the numbers of your congregation. So some of you I'm sure I've met and I do know, and some of you I'm pretty sure I haven't met and don't know. So let me just thank you for partnering with us. Thank you for your faithful partnership in prayer, uh, your interests, and in your uh, your financial support. 
And I hope just a wee little bit in the Sunday school hour, for those that were there, we, we were able to help you understand uh, what all God's doing. David has used the analogy, we feel like we're uh, riding a fire engine and we're the two guys on the back holding on and our legs are kind of flying out in the air because it's going so fast in front of us and we don't know where he's taking us, but we just are amazed at what he's been doing. So pray for us and uh, for our ministry. I don't know if it was intentional. Uh, Yes, we'll see if we're going to work here, if we're hung up or if we're going to, there we go. Are we on the right? I think we need to go to the different uh, set of slides. I mentioned we had uh, slides we were going to work through. I think these, there we go, Romans 15, 20. And I'm going to get up here where I can make sure. Uh, This verse is, I guess we'd call it a theme verse of David's personally. And it's a theme verse for the ministry. And I just want you to focus on it for a moment. For those of you that aren't familiar with To Every Tribe, we are a relatively new organization. Uh, But this encapsulates what we believe is the ministry God's given us. Uh, We go to unreached people groups to share the gospel. What do you mean unreached? Well, there's lots of ways of trying to explain it, but there's one important word that I think helps uh, most people, and it's the word access. I wouldn't even pretend to try to tell you that everybody in Anniston or Jacksonville or Gladstone or any of the surrounding communities that they've been completely evangelized. We all know, obviously, that's not the case. And so when I say we go to unreached people groups, I'm really saying something much different than what you all would be saying about reaching your own community. Yeah, you in one sense have an unreached people group living around you, The whole difference is there's access to the gospel almost everywhere you go in our country. The television programs, the radio waves, DVDs, books, libraries, conferences, friends and neighbors and families that are Christian. There's access all over the place. We target those places of the world where even if they wanted to, there is no access to the gospel. We go to places, and maybe this is the best way to define it, where in the history of their culture, not just in their own personal lifetime, but in the history of their culture, they have never heard a credible witness of the gospel. And so that means we go to places in New Guinea, and probably for most of us, if we know anything about geography, New Guinea is not all that hard to imagine as having places where people in the history of their culture have never heard a credible witness of the gospel. But we also go into Mexico. And within two hours of our facility in South Texas near Brownsville, we go to communities that still fit that definition of unreach. They have never heard a credible witness of the gospel. I'll tell you how one guy put it in, in one of the little villages in Mexico. This will really help you appreciate it. He says, we're so isolated, they don't even come collect our taxes. Now that's isolated. I don't care what country you live in. And so we go to these places with no running water, no electricity, and very small, very remote in most cases. And we go for exactly the same reason that I believe Paul was compelled to go in his day. 
Other people are going to other places. Other places have been reached. But there's still plenty of places that haven't. And that's the ministry God has given to every tribe. One statistic indicates that 90% of all so-called full-time missionaries go to only 10% of the world. Now let that statistic sink in a minute. 90% of all missionaries are going to only 10% of the world. And where do you guess that 10% is? Well, typically the cities, the urban places, the easier to get to places. And please don't misunderstand me. We're not dissing other missionaries or mission agencies. That's not the point at all. The point is, God's going to sovereignly place them and put them where He wants them. We have absolutely no issue or problem with that. It just still remains a fact that there are over a third of this world's population that remain unreached. And that, in a strange sounding kind of way, excites us. That's where we want to go. That's the people and the places we want to reach. And that's the reason we started the school that we did. If I could get a couple of other verses up here by way of understanding, we do this and we've started this mission organization, not because we were just sitting around one day and really didn't have anything to do, so "Ah, let's just start a mission organization. It's the hardest thing that I've ever been involved in in my life, although also the most rewarding But we've started it because we firmly believe the promises of God's Word contained in Malachi, for example, where he says, My name will be great among the, what? Nations. And so those of us with a Reformed perspective of theology take words out of those verses and we grab hold of them because we believe them all with all of our heart. It's not a hope so. It's not a maybe if. My name will be great among the nations. And we get to be a part of that. We get, one of the men asked me just before the service, what's the title of your message? And I thought, well, I didn't tell him this, but I don't really give my message titles, but let's try the privilege of suffering. Because that's precisely the point I want to try to communicate this morning. We don't have to go to these places. We get to go to these places. That's the difference in understanding and approach. And so God has promised even in the Old Testament, uh, through the prophet Malachi, His name will be great among the nations. And if we can get the other verse up there, and akin to the one that was read in Scripture from Revelation, the promise that with His blood, He has, not might, not may, not He has redeemed a people from every tribe, kindred, nation. Now you need to understand the word nations from the Scripture. These are not just general overarching promises that God's going to save some people out of America and out of Russia and out of Mexico. That's all true, but that's not as deep as these verses take us in the original language. The word nation in the Greek is ethnos. You don't have to be a linguist to recognize that that's where we get the English word ethnicities. 
from. And so in the Bible understanding of the word nation, we're not just talking about it in the sense that the United States is a nation and Canada is a nation and Mexico is a nation. We're talking about it in this sense. There are 880 ethnicities in Papua New Guinea alone. 880 different languages, different dialects, different cultures, different backgrounds. Just imagine, that's the job in one sense. That's the opportunity, or in light of the message, that's the privilege that God's put before us. 880 ethnicities. I mentioned in the Sunday school hour, you could be working with a tribe on one side of the mountain with its own specific language, culture, and background, walk over the mountain to the other side and find another tribe with a totally different language, totally different background and culture, and this tribe would not understand the other tribe if they spoke their original languages to each other. And that's Papua New Guinea alone. Now, we praise God that there's something called Melanesian Pigeon that most of the Pacific Basin uses, and it's a very uh, basic language that other mission agencies uh, chooses not necessarily to use, but we see it as an advantage, and so we minister through that language, and God has given us, uh, I believe, uh, tremendous grace and opportunity to do that. Uh, planning a church, how did I put it here? In an unreached area is like a turtle on a fence post. What does that mean? If you're walking along, I'm from a rural background in both Michigan and Pennsylvania, and my wife was from a farm in Minnesota. So you walk down the lane and through the, the cornfields and past the fence rows, and if you spotted a turtle on a fence post, what would you know automatically? What would you know if you saw a turtle on a fence post? It didn't get there by itself. (laughs) Somebody had to do something to get it there. That's precisely why we do what we do to every tribe. For us to go to these unreached people groups is like somebody putting a turtle on a fence post. It's not going to happen if we don't go. And we believe it's a great privilege to do it. I'm not sure exactly what... Oh, James Chalmers, we need to talk about him. James Chalmers was reportedly the first white missionary in Papua New Guinea. He went in the late 1800s, phenomenal individual. Uh, David Sitton's been called the Indiana Jones of modern missionaries. Well, James Chalmers was certainly the forerunner. This guy was radical. Uh, accounts talk about him going up to, to, to New Guineans in the late 1800s, still many practicing headhunters and cannibals. And, and these guys are dancing around and chanting and shouting and trying to scare the bejeebies out of you. And he'd walk up and take their spears and their bows and arrows out of their hand and tell them to sit down. He'd preach them the gospel. Now that's radical. April 4th, I believe, 1901. Fly River District down near southern Papua New Guinea. He went into a village. He was invited into the spirit house that I showed some pictures of this morning in the Sunday school hour. And the New Guineans are little short people and the entries to the spirit houses 
those places. They're the religious centers of all their villages where only the initiated men of the tribe are allowed to, to go in. James Chalmers started to go into the spirit house and ducked down and there were natives on the other side with their clubs waiting for them and waiting for him and they clubbed him to death and they put him in a pot and they cooked him like a pig and they ate him. Uh, records indicate that the natives could be seen just streaming out of the mountains just to get a taste of the white missionary. Because we all know white meat is the best meat. And we can say things like that, and yet it's incredible to me to think about those kinds of men experiencing those things for the privilege of taking the gospel to unreached people group. In fact, it's told later on, months after Chalmers was killed, a native was found chewing on the sole of one of his shoes. And you have to understand a little bit about the culture, the whole headhunter and, and, and cannibal uh, aspect of society is akin to what you find in, in the Southern Plains Indians of our country, where they took scalps. And they took scalps for the same reason that New Guineans ate their victims. They believed that all of the strength and all of the power and all the wisdom and all the craftiness and all the good things from that opponent that they had just killed, if they would take his scalp or eat his body or cut off his head and put it on a post, all those things would become theirs personally. They would become that much greater a warrior. An individual. And in their culture, it makes perfect sense. I'll tell you what it does as well. And we're not that far removed in some of the villages we go to, to those same events. When God, by His sovereign grace, opens their hearts and radically saves them and brings them out of darkness into light, those people who know more about the spirit world and what's going on around us than I think most of us do, when they hear about Jesus Christ and eating His flesh and drinking His blood and a personal indwelling of the Spirit of God, they understand it better than we do. Trust me. And so James Chalmers becomes an amazing person that we like to talk about. The Fijians that I have there, Fijians are incredible. Fijians had a a revival that took place in their country. And Fijians were cannibalistic just like New Guineans were. And when they were converted, many of them said, we need to go take this same gospel to the people who are just like us, meaning those other cannibals in New Guinea. And you know what they did? They had these great, huge, ocean-going canoes. And they built their own coffins and put their possessions in those coffins and then left for New Guinea. Why on earth did they do that? Because they understood better than any of us could that they were going to be killed. And they were going to die and be martyred simply for taking or trying to take the name of Jesus Christ to people who had never heard it before. And they were. They were slaughtered in waves. And as soon as news would come back, and of course they didn't have radio and television and uh, internet and 
Uh, take months, but when people heard they were replaced by other Fijians, and New Guinea was reached in many cases and places by these Fijians. We don't have time to talk about the Moravians. Uh, the Ecuador Five, uh, again, we're just going to go on here. Uh, Matthew chapter 10. Take your Bibles there. Because with that background, I want you to hear the words of Scripture. And this really brings me to the point of what I was trying to say when I said my mind was really spinning. Uh, where, where do we want to start from and where do we want to go and where do we want to get to? If I chose a subtitle for my message, The Privilege of Suffering, I think it would be this. We don't get it. We just don't get it. And, and when I say that, I'm talking generally about the understanding of what it means to be a Christian as the Scripture describes a Christian. Not, we don't get it and understand what it means to be a Christian in 21st century America. Unfortunately, in my opinion, we get that all too well. We, we do a great job at being a 21st century Christian in America. But listen to the words of Jesus Christ, for example. Matthew chapter 10, and lots of things we could look at here. If you've got your subtitles in your Bible, like most do, Jesus is talking to the 12 disciples, and He's told them, He's given them authority to drive out uh, demons or evil spirits, and He sends them out with these instructions, uh, verse 5. But what I want you to notice specifically is verse 16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now, I'm personally of the opinion there's no better simple, single description of what it means biblically to become a Christian than the verse I just read. But I'm also of the opinion that because we're so earthly-minded and, and so worldly-minded, like the disciples, we don't get it. And I don't think they did either. So I'm not saying that in terms of putting us down, you or me or the disciples. It's just the fact that God came to establish this completely upside-down kingdom from what we in our earthly imaginations think it ought to be. Because if you're honest with me, and I'm trying to be honest with you, if we would really be honest with one another, it really is all about me. And my health and my wealth and my peace of mind and my security. And we go at great lengths, even as believers. And sometimes we're even taught by people who sound very straightforward and very convincing, even among Christians, to think some ways that I think are just absolutely contrary to Scripture. And that's, see, we need a whole missions conference. We need about a week to just work through and flesh through some of these things to really give us a grasp of, of what I'm trying to say. But let's make this phrase sufficient for this morning. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I love word pictures. I love people who teach with illustrations or use verbal word pictures. Jesus Christ has used a phenomenal word picture. 
What on earth is he conveying to us through that word picture? Sheep among wolves. I pastored a church in central Pennsylvania, a Reformed Baptist church in a little town called Lewisburg for 23 years. And all of those years, or the vast majority of them, we supported David and Tommy. And so my relationship with them go way back to the early early 80s. And then uh, about five years ago, and the Lord determined in my life and ultimately my mind that there was going to be a different direction of ministry, and I came on full-time with them. Through those 23 years, we had a particular man in our congregation who raised sheep. And in the Amish Mennonite hills and mountains of central Pennsylvania, I'm here to tell you, there was no prettier picture than coming over the hill on Beaver Run Road and seeing his farm with his hills and his evergreens and those flocks of sheep and the tranquility and the peace and the contentment. We loved to visit his farm. That's not what this verse is talking about. (laughs) It's talking about sheep among wolves. And it's just the opposite picture that he's describing to us. Not one of tranquility. Not one of peace and security and absence of suffering. But exactly the opposite. In fact, if you get right down to what I believe the word picture teaches, consider an episode where a sheep is confronted by a wolf and what would you assume would be the outcome? Death to the sheep. You know, wolf one, sheep zero. And I believe that's exactly the picture And the message that Jesus Christ is communicating. To be a Christian, whatever else you want to say, however else you want to define it, however else you want to picture it and flesh it out, at the root, at the heart, at the very essence of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, it means death. First, middle, and end. Death. And again, man, could we have fun? Could, could we have spent some valuable time in a missions conference and, and break up into some workshops and have some small groups talk about what on earth does that concept look like? What does it mean in general? I'm not even really at this point interested in digging into it theologically because I don't think you need to dig into it theologically. It speaks for itself. But what does it look like in my life? How am I daily dying as a Christian, to myself, to my wants, to my desires, some of which, given just left to themselves, are are not sinful. I'm not even talking about the wrong things of life. That goes without saying. Sin is sin. And it's to have no part in our life. I'm talking about things that we so often even accept as very normal and very ordinary. And in some cases, Possibly even very noble. And yet given this description of a Christian, they may not be for me and you. One of the things I love in a group at least this size, because I'm absolutely convinced of it, that it's happening this second, right now, 
In fact, it, it, it already began before the service ever started. And some of you are sitting here and your life is just not quite right. And you're not even sure what's going on. You, you just you feel something isn't the way it's going to be. It's just an unsettledness. It's just an unsureness. And, and I'm absolutely convinced I'm talking about somebody here this morning. And I won't be at all shocked if somebody comes up after and says, I don't believe it. How did you know? Nobody else knows. My family doesn't know. And I know it because it happened to me. A 23-year pastorate with a congregation almost as good as this one. We had a great fellowship. So many similarities in terms of a, a combination of older people and younger people and kids all over the place. Exciting times. And I just felt unsettled. And it may very well be that God is beginning His work or has already begun your work, His work in this very area of life. And He's going to move you. He's, he's stirring you. He's, it's that whole issue of inertia that, you know, you got to get this thing moving. And He's used some maybe crazy things in your life. Tragedies maybe. Financial setbacks, maybe. Uh, relational difficulties. May go, the list is almost endless. What God is pleased to do. But He's doing it for a purpose. And He's doing it on purpose. And I believe very often it's for this very reason to unsettle us enough, to get us just uncomfortable enough with this this secure 21st century American Christianity that we're at least willing to start think or talk or, or even imagine crazy things about making some very important decisions for Christ. Well, I have no idea where this is going to take us. I can't wait to hear my message <laughs> because it doesn't bear any resemblance to the notes. Well, one of the things I wanted to share was this text in Acts. Because this is another word you need to understand. So take your Bible here and turn to Acts chapter 1. And, and it, it, it fits again with this theme of the privilege of suffering. Paul talked about uh, loving to suffer is really the free translation. And I wrestled for years with that phrase. There, wasn't, there just wasn't any way I could get it to work outright in my theology and in my personal experience. Because I did everything I could imagine to avoid suffering. And when suffering did come, pray myself out of suffering and just knew that something was wrong. I'd either done something wrong or God was wrong or because I was suffering. And now as a ministry and as individuals, we embrace this concept. We believe that God intentionally employs suffering for His purposes to be accomplished. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's not some evidence that God somehow has turned from a God who loves His people into a God who hates His people. But He knows what He's doing and He knows what it takes in most of our lives. And He's going to get through to us for His name's sake. And so we come to a verse like this, and again, we know the, 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 the chapter, we know most of what it says. We could probably even quote the verse. 
But he talks to us here and he says, it is not for you to know the times or dates. Again, if we'd have had the time to develop, we could have just used this text. Here's the example of this upside down kingdom I was talking about. Jesus is commissioning his disciples. He's about to leave them. And what do they want to know? What's the question that's burning in their heart? When's the earthly kingdom coming? <laughs> when does everything in life get fixed? And if I could paraphrase it, he says, you, you just still don't get it. Because it's not at all about here. We're pilgrims. We're strangers. Uh, some of you know the name of our school as the Center for Pioneer Church Planning. We chose that name on purpose, though it's a mouthful. <laughs> and even when you abbreviate it, it's the CPCP, and that kind of catches you at times. But the Center for Pioneer Church Planning denotes a couple things. Pioneer, in mission terminology, is, is a, a depiction of those who go to places, remote, faraway places. They leave home. They leave what's known. They, they, they act as pioneers in the new places. And sadly, I'm here to tell you, and I mean this with all of my heart, many, many missionaries who start out as pioneers end up as settlers. And they get just as comfortable, they get just as secure, and they lose that vision, and they lose that passion, and all the time they're still on a foreign field. And we don't want that for our people. But it also speaks to us as Christians. We're, we're to be pioneers as Christians. We're not to be settlers and just get life all neat and boxed in place. We're here to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, whatever it takes. And that brings me back to our premise. We believe that God intentionally employs suffering and hardship to accomplish that very end. It's not something often to be run away from. It's something to be looked at and understood and then embraced for what reason God put it there and to live in a way that will bring fame and glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And we get a verse like this. That you will. There's that word again. It's that absolute promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Another definition of Christianity. We're spirit-filled people. We have power at our disposable. Unnatural. Supernatural power. We're not like the world. We're not left to their ends and designs to deal with adversity and hardship and suffering. We've got the Spirit of God in us. And He intentionally uses those things to advance His name and magnify, I believe, His Spirit in our life. And you will the verse goes on and proclaims again with absolute certainty, certainty, you will be my what? What's the word? 
You can't even say it. Witnesses. I'm not talking about the professional. I'm not talking about TETMers. I'm not talking about preachers and pastors. I'm talking about Christians. We will be witnesses. We have the Spirit. Now, do you know what the word witness is in the Greek? And if we can get it up there, you'll probably recognize it too. It's the word martyreo. And again, you don't have to be a linguist to understand it's the word we get the English word martyr. And so when I told you the premise upon which we operate at TETM, I intentionally left out part of it. We believe that God intentionally deploys and employs suffering and even martyrdom to advance His name among the unreached. When you come to TETM or when you come to the CPCP, and I got a sneaking suspicion, we're going to see some of you there. I pray that we do. But I'll tell you this. When you come to the CPCP the first day, or at least in the first week, you will sign a burial form. We don't talk about these things just because they, they're a hook. <laughs> you know, and they get people's attention. We talk about these things because we believe God means exactly what He says. And very likely, some of our people will be called upon to give up their life. This is rooted in kind of a humorous experience, when David first went to New Guinea as a young man two weeks after his 20th birthday and he met a veteran missionary and he, he challenged David to go with him to reach an unreached people group called the Kuka Kuka. And he, and he basically explained, and they were practicing headhunters, cannibals at that point. And he explained it this way. He said, I'm old. I'm just about ready to leave New Guinea, my, my time as a, as a missionary. And you have to understand, you reach some of these villages by taking a five-day hike across the mountains, you can't even access them by canoe. And trust me, I'm 60, and those days are past that I'd even start on a five-day hike. And he said, I'm getting to a place where I can't reach them, but David, you're young, and, you, and, and, and I'll go with you, and together we can reach them. And they did. There's an incredible story, real story, true story, of how God providentially opened the hearts of over 300 villagers in that village of 350 in a matter of a few days and brought them to Christ. Incredible story. But as they sat around their little fire planning and plotting, the missionary pulls out a sheet of paper and David says, what's this? And he says, well, it's a burial certificate. You need to sign it. And David laughed. He thought he was kidding. He thought he was pulling his leg. And he was dead. So he says, well, you don't think I'm going to pull your carcass out of the jungle, do you? And you got to know David. His next response is, well, okay, I'll sign it, but you sign one because I'm not pulling your carcass out either. And that's the root of it. But that's also how seriously we take it. It's how seriously we should all take it. That Jesus Christ demands, requires our very life. 
Most of us, and I say this again as a confession, not as a rebuke, most of us aren't willing to go across the street by way of sacrifice. And if you went out on the streets of your local community and you did a little survey and asked people the simple question, what are you here for? You're going to get a response here like I'd get in Lewisburg and we'd get in South Texas and almost any part of the United States of America. And especially if you ask a younger person, they'd go through the sequence and, well, I'm trying to get good grades so I can get into a good college and and then I'll major and graduate and maybe get a degree and hopefully a good job that will provide an income so I can get married and have a house and a car or two and take one or two vacations. And, man, a phrase I'm becoming to detest be able to lay aside for the future? Man, I want to take people who have heard and attended seminars about laying aside for the future into the heart of Papua New Guinea and show them the villages and the tribes that we come into contact with and the mount and the, the people of Mexico, some of which are so remote they don't even speak Spanish. They've lived in these places for all of their lives and their parents' lives and their grandparents' lives. And as far back as time began, never once hearing the gospel, how secure is their future? And do we have any responsibility? Are we our brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. So what are you here for? And I'm talking about not this morning. I mean, it's almost time to... Pray and dismiss, and this maybe is your home church, and you know it's Sunday, and I try to be in church. I'm not asking it that way. I'm not even asking it. Maybe you're native to Alabama. Maybe you've been transplanted here by your job. I'm not even asking that question. Some of you may be at school, though that's not a bad question to ask. Why do you live in Alabama, in this city? on the street that you do, in the house, the specific house, in the specific location. Because it's not an accident. Whatever else is true, it's not an accident. It's on purpose. God put you there. But I'm not even asking it in that sense. I told you I, I pastored for 23 years a small Reformed Baptist church in Lewisburg. In that 23 years, I buried two of my deacons in their 30s. Similar circumstances. We just had our women leave for a weekend retreat in the fall with one of them. And we had a little get-together at my house and the fathers that were left and the kids. And we just had a party time. And uh, you know we were probably playing Nintendo because that's what it was back then. Uh, and the last guy to leave was one of my deacons, Randy Hummel. And he was going to go home with his daughter and her 10-year-old girlfriend, and they were going to go bowling Saturday afternoon. And when they went to bed, he purposely told the two girls, now, I, I want to sleep in. Don't get me up early. And, of course, the girls are up at the crack of dawn. They're going bowling with Dad. And they look into his room, and Michelle, his daughter, says she remembers saying, boy, he looks like he's dead. He just He's so... You know, zonked. And in fact, he was.
I will never forget the phone call about one of my dearest friends who went to bed and didn't get up. And a few years later, another deacon took an afternoon nap between jobs and never got up. God influenced my life through a little book by John Piper called uh, I've lost the title. Oh, that's terrible. Don't waste your life. Thank you, Carlton. And he asked, he, he essentially asks exactly the same question. And for God's purposes, as I was reading, the Word of God, not even Scripture, but the Word of God spoke to my heart and asked me that personally. Why are you here? And I had all the father, husband, grandfather kind of answers. And he said, well, that's what you think. (laughs) And he has radically changed my life in the past five years. And I have a suspicion he may be pleased to do that in some of your lives. It may mean you'll go to South Texas to a missionary training school that up until today you'd never heard of. It may mean you'll go somewhere else. It may mean you'll stay right here. But you'll live your life differently. And that's my only prayer. That God would get a hold of our hearts and help us to embrace the biblical terminology of what it means to be a Christian. And it isn't so that I can be comfortable and healthy and wealthy and secure People ask us all the time. I love it when they do. You know, well, how do you know if you're called to be a Christian, to be a missionary? And you know how I respond lately? Well, before I answer that question, you tell me how you know that you're called to live in luxury and comfortable and in a warm house with two or three cars and take a couple of vacations. And that typical American lifestyle. You tell me where you get your call because I know exactly where I get my call. And we just read the verse. You will be my witnesses. And sometimes that puts you in awful difficult circumstances and awfully uncomfortable. And sometimes it requires you to totally abandon what the people around you think you ought to do and why you ought to do it. But you know what? It does not matter. Because it's not about us and it's not about this life. It's about Jesus Christ for all eternity and the glory that's due to His name. We have just done a new mark, they call it, our little arrow and insignia, and our name is there. But we've also adopted a new slogan, and it's this. And it's with this I'll close because it's really the answer to what I've been talking about all this morning. Jesus is worth it. And He is. Thank you.